Welcome to Philosophers on Medicine. Side effects include having your mind blown. I'm Jonathan Fuller. The mastery of clinical judgment is what separates the expert clinician from the novice. Yet clinical judgment remains somewhat obscure. Is it a tacit knowledge or one that could be formulated according to explicit rules? Is it a science or a virtue? Has it been replaced or its importance reduced by evidence-based medicine? Or will it soon be taken over from clinicians by intelligent machines? And what is clinical judgment anyway? In today's consultation, I sit down with four guests ahead of a clinical judgment symposium to see how they use philosophy to understand clinical judgment. We're going to be talking about clinical judgment, and I have with me four esteemed panelists. Ross Upshur, professor at the University of Toronto. Hi. Lewis Flores, psychiatrist and research fellow in philosophy at King's College London. Hello. Catherine Montgomery, the E-Line Professor Emerita of Medical Humanities and Bioethics at Northwestern University. Hello. And Benjamin Jilbegovich, Distinguished Professor at the University of South Florida. Hello. Ross, I wanted to start with you about telling us what is clinical judgment. So what is included under the heading of clinical judgment or clinical reasoning? So I'm going to give a surprise answer and say, I don't know. And I hope to be significantly enlightened by the end of tomorrow because we're having a symposium on clinical judgment. So I don't think it's any one thing in particular. I think it's a constellation of different things that relate to the tasks that physicians, clinicians of various stripes perform in their day-to-day work and in terms of their figuring out the problems that patients bring to them. And so one of the interesting dimensions of this that I want to highlight is that I think clinical judgment and clinical practice are closely intertwined. I think that there is a maturation effect that relates to the amount of experience that you have and how many different cases you see. I think it might be something that's teachable. If not, then I've wasted 30 years of my life as a clinical educator. But the really interesting points I want to sort of explore a little further is how people actually conceptualize what it is that's going on. And what I think motivated the symposium is this view that there's various different interpretations of how we might best understand clinical judgment. Some looking towards kind of mathematical statistical models, some looking to the cognitive science some looking to sort of the interpretive hermeneutic traditions. And I think it's kind of being a good pluralist. It's an amalgamation of them all. And the task that we have is to figure out when each mode is in play and how we kind of articulate that in terms of educating people. So I would be reluctant to reduce it to any one of those moments, but I think we still haven't figured out exactly how they all fit together. So I'm confused. Benjamin Jobegovich. Would you say then that particularly whatever the processes is going in our brain to get displayed in terms of clinical judgment, are they actually are kicking in depending on the type of problem? So you have a one form, could be as, as Louise was saying, descriptive versus normative type mm. of a general approach versus other one. It is really, the processes are being actually activated depending on type of a problem. Yeah, so I think people from the cognitive psychology will sort of say, yeah, it's in your brain in the sense that it's, well, I was just reading this 
small digression to start, Ian Hacking wrote this great book on the philosophy of mathematics. And so the question is, where do mathematical objects <laughs> exist? Do they exist in your brain or are they out there like platonic forms? So it's the same thing like clinical judgment. Is it something intersubjectively specified? Is it something that's a cognitive process? Is it part of narratives that are constructed together? I think it might be all or part of those. But I'm not sure that it's any one necessarily rule-following account that we can give. So I get this thing descriptive. We say, how is it that people actually do it normatively? How ought they to do it? I don't think there's any one specific normative specification of how we ought to have clinical judgments, largely because the <coughs> constellation of problems that we face in clinical medicine is so diverse and heterogeneous, it would be hard to set it down to a set of rules. Now. We'll talk about this tomorrow. The artificial yeah. intelligence people probably believe you can do that, and I'm skeptical of that. I wanted to ask you, Catherine Montgomery, when people are describing clinical judgment as a kind of expertise that the experienced clinical practitioner gains over time, oftentimes we're thinking about something less explicit, more intuitive, or tacit. So what are tacit knowledge and intuitive knowledge? Are these just kind of pre-scientific modes of clinical judgment that we had before the realization of scientific medicine? Or in fact, are they a good component of our best scientific medical practice? Both. I believe that clinical judgment has always existed and really always will, even when we've got the last bit of genetic information codified and linked up with clinical conditions. Clinical judgment will still be needed, but I believe it was pre-scientific, and then science came along and began to shape and correct it. And I think that's still a process that goes on. If you look at the really good descriptions of dual process thinking, slow thinking is always crossing over and becoming integrated into fast thinking. You learn things, and then you assume it, and it becomes a habit, and you know it. And then, especially if you are strongly persuaded by evidence-based medicine, you may take some of your habits, your intuitions, and examine them carefully or do a study yourself. Certainly look up things that other people have learned about your habit. So both prehistoric and still part of it, still an essential part of clinical reasoning now. Is there a science of clinical judgment? No. Aristotle says there can be no science of the individual. And clinical judgment, if there were, the clinical judgment used in the care of the patient would be a science of the individual. And I believe Aristotle, no. I'm with you, hmm. Ross. The artificial intelligence people can put down rules. Docs have been putting down rules for forever, rules of thumb often. Mm -hmm. But they're always contradicted. Somebody's got a rule of thumb that is directly opposed to the one that the august full professor has just uttered. Lewis Flores. I think your question is kind of tricky because the answer depends on what you understand by science. Because you may well think of the science of clinical judgment in a more dynamic, phenomenological way. Mm -hmm. If you understand science as something completely objective, explicit, of course you have these kind of tensions. But you know very well the philosophers of science had a lot of trouble to try to demarcate 
what is science from pseudoscience and there is a dimension between objectivity intersubjectivity and subjectivity and you might well say that this issue extends to judgment in general and judgment is an essential component of what constitutes good science there can be no good science without judgment nor good medicine without clinical judgment i would say if there's no science of clinical judgment in the way that we have a science of matter and energy physics or a science of life and living things, biology, are there sciences that contribute to progress in clinical judgment? Ross Upshur. So I think that would depend on whether you consider logic a science or not, or whether you consider mathematics a science or not. Because I think kind of the infrastructure of a lot of these things would be some form of logic. And there's not one form of logic, there's different logics that have different uses, just like there's different mathematics that have different purposes. So then the question would be, is it an empirical or an applied science? In which case, we've got a bigger toolkit to work with, and we can say, sure, it's got elements of psychology, of social sciences, but then why do we need to limit it to the sciences alone when there's other ways of knowing things perfectly adequately that come through discourses in the humanities? That would then say, well, we're not going to allow narratives into our account of clinical judgment because narratives are not scientific. And then that, I think, would be constraining us in ways that would be harmful to evolving our understanding of clinical judgment. Catherine Montgomery. I think clinical judgment is itself a form of reasoning, Mm -hmm. participates in reasoning, certainly. And I want to quote Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher who said, I can't quote him, but I'll paraphrase. He said, if we use science as the model for practical reason, which is what clinical judgment is, if we use science as the model, then we're doomed to find it inadequate and we end up losing our faith in science. And when I first found that in his book on the self, The History of the Concept of the Self, Sources of the Self, self, it seemed really relevant. Benjamin Jilbegovich, I want to keep it with you because I wanted to talk a little bit about evidence-based medicine or EBM. And what comes to mind is what's probably the most famous definition of evidence-based medicine published in the British Medical Journal. 1996 by David Sackett and colleagues, where they defined evidence-based medicine as, quote, the practice of evidence-based medicine means integrating individual clinical expertise with the best available external clinical evidence from systematic research. By individual clinical expertise, we mean the proficiency and judgment that individual clinicians acquire through clinical experience and clinical practice. And I'm wondering what it means to exercise clinical judgment in an era of evidence-based medicine, which many people feel is the paradigm of current medical practice? Yeah, I think that's a crucial question. And the way I look at that is, so evidence-based medicine, if you take it, arguably represents scientific basis of modern practice. And I think that's what you already mentioned. And science by nature really aims to generate uh, universally truth phenomena, universally valid statements. But the, what we can know from science or from EBM is really overall behavioral classes of, of groups. We can never really know or individual cases remains unrepeatable and unique. So that's where it actually gets your expertise. Your expertise now is or tacit knowledge to use Catherine Montgomery's work that 
that's where you then you're applying uh, scientific principle or group data or trial data typically to individual cases and now application individual case, this is a classical problem of induction where the data that we observed in the past can be applied to unobservable cases and meaning in our context of the future of the patient we're seeing. The problem is, as you know, it's theoretically unsolvable problem, but in practice, we do rely on the principle of exchangeability of a past and a future, and within an EBM that certain recipes have been kind of a design, like uh, we should really match circumstances of the patient, the circumstances of the trial, so-called famous PICO, whether we are dealing, applying patients, similar patients, intervention, you know, comparison outcomes from trial to individual patient. And that is really where ultimately expertise comes, really application of research data, which by nature will, will always be based on a group, how small the groups are. They will never, science will never be on a unique, unrepeatable event two individual cases. So you need both. The practitioner has to be an evidence-based medicine, but then whatever the judgment means has to be really used to apply to individual cases. Luis Flores. I have a question for, for Ben, which is related to the political implications of a movement like EBM, where science meets public policy. What are your views on, on this tension? Because one is this kind of idealistic definition of EBM and were commonsensical in the sense that you have to have this compromise and the integration and, and have a, a place for expertise. But what do doctors do in practice when you have evidence-based guidelines and algorithms and a series of practices that are defined as best practices on the basis of aggregate data? How do you think this tension can be solved or ameliorated in the future? Look at my answer that it's a theoretically unsolvable tension. It, you, know, you have a group data, and we just have to really. I mean, I've written in some of the papers that obviously nobody ever read, you know. So, but my point is, we just have to understand that's the best we have. The group data is the best we have, there's nothing else we will ever have better. And the group data can be smaller, sliced by genomics and all of this, you know, but ultimately it's a group data, maybe group of three. I mean, who knows? But yeah. And that's expertise comes, implications to the individual cases. But is the group data the best we have for individual patients? Remember how an evidence-based medicine was a response to accumulated experience of physicians and realized that we were doing a lot of wrong things. And just to, this is my favorite one when I teach these kind of things. Apparently somebody done it, yeah, read it some long time, somebody actually calculated that 40 years of, and this is just to make a point here, not necessary to state empirical veracity of, of the case, but nevertheless, <laughs> that's apparently 40 years of experience of one physician with one drug well, one disease is not equal to well-done randomized trial. <laughs> Just to kind of uh, put this in terms of uh, validity of the um, empirical evidence. So, yes. Catherine Montgomery? It's the physician's duty to exercise her clinical judgment against the protocols and algorithms and the group data that doesn't quite fit this particular patient. But at the same time, he or she cannot dispense without group data. Ross Upshur. So, lots of things to say on this. Since sure. <laughs> I was with the people who founded evidence-based medicine before it became evidence-based yeah. medicine. Then it was critical appraisal and clinical epidemiology, which I really liked. Mm -hmm. So, actually, I think it was Jack Hirsch, who was the chief of medicine, 
who would always say, you'd be in rounds and you'd say, I want to do this. And you'd always say, what's your evidence? And mm -hmm. what evidence meant was, what's your reason for believing that mm -hmm. this drug, this diagnostic modality was going to do anything of benefit? And then it took on a different frame. It was now we've got all this architecture around what qualifies as evidence. So there is a huge inferential gap between well-designed group-based information, be it from a cohort study or a clinical trial, and the application to the individual. And that inferential gap will always remain. So you would agree, basically, what I was trying to say. That yeah. The application of group data or science data, however, to individual cases where yeah. basically well, that third part of the second definition of a yeah. BBM is, or maybe what expertise is this for? Well, you'd need a good reason not to go to the clinical literature, and a good reason would be a patient telling you, I don't care what the drug literature says, I'm not taking a drug. Well, good, that'll save me a lot of time. But thinking that you, you're agreeing that the expertise is essentially application of scientific of data to individual cases. And normative data, because and I'm going to yeah, say that yeah. your knowledge of a patient, whatever that may be, and this may be by bias as a primary care physician who cares for people yeah. over the long period of time, that that actually feeds into my judgment. Here's the, here's the point, I don't know, maybe we're going off the, you will edit these things, you know, so every so often there's a new criticism of evidence-based medicine, and every so often it's the same criticism, oh, evidence-based medicine doing with the trial data, you know, there, we need new evidence-based medicine that is dealing with application to individual cases. And I actually said in some papers, there's no other way. Just simply, there's no other way. I wanted to actually probe that point. So mm -hmm. is this problem of applying general information to individuals that evidence-based medicine faces, is that unique to an approach that relies so heavily on population-level data? Or is this somehow a universal feature of any, well, any science, uh, science yeah. of clinical judgment? Yeah. Catherine Montgomery? I think it's common to practices. Yeah which use Aristotle's phronesis, which is the retrospective consideration of uncertain circumstances, having to make a decision in uncertain circumstances, and but, having, but, having to reason backwards yeah. to do it. Law is the same way, and they yeah. say that moral theology is the same way. But Catherine Montgomery, you, you've modeled clinical judgment on Aristotle's phronesis, or practical reasoning, mm -hmm. which you just alluded to. Uh, what was that philosophy? What was Aristotle's view? Well, he describes five intellectual virtues, and phronesis is one of them. It's the practical reasoning, and he contrasts it with episteme, which is the source of our word epistemology, which is the knowledge of facts, science. And also he contrasts it with techne, craft. So sitting here, we can imagine that surgeons have the craft knowledge. I think other people have craft knowledge too, but they're generally procedural, you know, mm -hmm. doing lumbar punctures and things like that. But Aristotle was writing in the Nicomachean Ethics about ethical reasoning, about the interpretive reasoning, like lawyers and like clinicians, working out how you decide about this individual case in light of a kind of overarching worldview. And he says that episteme doesn't do you any good in certain circumstances. There are no rules for how to decide an ethical case. There are rules of thumb, but you can always argue about them. And judgment, moral judgment, maybe has a duty to investigate it and interrogate the rules. He says phronesis is no guide for deciding the individual case, that what always happens is that people take the individual case 
And they might look at causation, which is backward. They look at the rules. They look at the circumstances. And it's corrigible. It's changeable. It's correctable. Mm-hmm. Not in the same sense, I thought of this when you were speaking, Ross. It's not science is always correctable, mm-hmm. but this is revisable. I think that's yeah. the word you used. Yes. And that's a better word for what happens with phronesis and phronetic judgments. This brings me to my last question that I wanted to ask each of you. A lot's made these days about artificial intelligence and how it'll <laughs> take over a lot of our jobs, how a computer can read a radiograph better than a moderate to novice expert radiologists. Will clinical judgment ever be replaced by developments in artificial intelligence or otherwise? Ross Upshur? No. So it's a logical problem, right? So you have to imagine a universe where the sum totality of information relevant to the practice of medicine can be inputted. So it's kind of, it may not be computationally impossible, but it probably is. Will it aid? Perhaps. I think it will become increasingly an aid to information management, but along the lines of the paper you wrote on uncertainty, there will always be problems with uncertainty, measurement error, random error that are going to be baked in. Also, there's a kind of interest. It's uh, AI is just going to reflect who we are and what our cognitive structures are, unless, of course, computers somehow become sentient and are able to retaxonomize the universe, et cetera, et cetera, and then they, we won't need people anyway. So, <laughs> so no, I don't think so. Louis Flores? Well, I think we, we go back to the beginning because it depends on the concept of clinical judgment. Because decades ago, we didn't think that you could build driveless cars. I mean, yeah. now we can. But the point is that, do we really can? What we have now is certain models that can have very complex functions. So we have a model of what is a car that drives itself, which is different to the full conception of driving a car. The autopilot can do certain things, many things that humans do, that cannot do everything that a human normally does. So when it comes to clinical judgment, I think that you can create certain models where you have enough computations to make certain tasks consistent, efficient, and create a good model of certain aspects of judgment. But whether this is going to be interpreted as a replacement of judgment, I am the side of Ross, because I think it is a multi-domain concept, and there are some things that are not going to be just modeled perfectly well by the computation. But engineers work breaking down problems. So if they break down clinical judgment, they are going to come up with some very good parts of judgment that work automatically. And that is going to happen for certain, I think. But the whole, it's a different thing. Catherine Montgomery? We're always going to need clinical judgment because we're going to need to have a look at whether these x-rays or scans produce false positives, whether they end up doing more biopsies than are needed, whether they're, you know, it's, there's the possibility of refining it. And that's useful. That's actually medical progress to refine the augmentations Mm. that people come up with to aid clinicians, but it's never going to go away. Benjamin Jilbegovich? Well, short term, I'm obviously skeptical that AI will replace humans. And I include all of this hype with the big data and things, so I don't think anything is going to really 
there'll be lots of AIDS and helps within 50, 100 years. But, but one of my favorite thought experiments, gosh, you know, you, you woke up like uh, if, if you were born in 1500 and I woke up now. The, you know, science is really science fiction. 5,000 years from now, who knows? Mm. I mean, maybe we will be replaced uh, or somehow be some cyborg there. So if we don't just kind of destroy humanity in the meantime, so that's open question as well. Well, in my judgment, this has been a lot of fun. So yeah. thanks to all of you. Indeed. Thank you for the opportunity, John. To hear more Philosophers on Medicine, visit www.philosophersonmedicine.com or find us on iTunes or Google Play.